Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Getting Even is produced by Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can hear Getting Even and other Pushkin shows ad-free and receive exclusive bonus episodes. Sign up on the Getting Even show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. It's difficult to change the way people think ballet should be. And I felt like I had a purpose, which is to exist in these white spaces and succeed and change the narrative. That's ballet dancer Misty Copeland. She made history in 2015 when she became the first Black woman ever to be promoted to principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater. When she's off stage, Copeland is committed to making more communities feel like they belong in the world of ballet. I feel like that's something that I've taken on as a responsibility. Copeland's interest in music and movement drew her to ballet at a young age. It was her creative outlet and escape. And as she progressed, ballet both nurtured and challenged her. I attribute my success, the person that I am, all of this to so many of the qualities within the ballet structure that gave me the tools to be successful, not just as a ballet dancer, but as a person, as a woman, as a leader in my community. I'm Anita Hill. This is Getting Even, my podcast about equality and what it takes to get there. On Getting Even, I speak with people who are improving our imperfect world, people who took risks and broke the rules. In this episode, Misty Copeland and I discuss how she journeyed from the local Boys and Girls Club to the American Ballet Theater maneuvering through racist politics along the way. 
We also discuss how she uses that very platform to empower black and brown girls today. You were the first person on my list to interview, and uh, it's really a tribute to all of the wonderful things that you've done and uh, that you continue to do in your professional life, as well as the way you present outside of the ballet world. Thank you. So I want to just get started with your story. Am I correct that you started ballet at 13? Yes, you are. (laughs) Oh, and and I, I say it that way because it seems to me that most of the people who are in those beginning classes are like five years old. Yes. Yes, that's true. (laughs) So what was it like for you those first few years as somebody who was starting much later than some of the people who you were probably dancing with? You know, it was an opportunity that I feel like I was craving and, and waiting for. Didn't realize it. Um, You know, coming from the communities that I grew up in, being in a single parent home and being one of six children. I mean, I was so introverted. I had a lot of shame that was kind of surrounding me in terms of not wanting people to know the circumstances that we were living in. Um, And so I became this like shell of a person. I was not involved in any any extracurricular activities, anything artistic or physical in terms of sports until I decided at like 12 and a half that out of nowhere that I was going to audition for the drill team and not just audition to be on the team, but I was going to audition to be captain of the team. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think that it was this evolution of having music in my life, which was constantly around the house. And I was always drawn to lyrics. And, and it was like, these are the words I wish I could speak and things I'm feeling, but I'm not capable. I don't have the tools. And movement became this outlet with the chaos in my home, whether it was abuse, instability, all, all of that. So I auditioned for the drill team and I made captain. My family was shocked. They were like, do you understand that you're going to be on stage performing for people. And (laughs) it was interesting because being on a stage was the one space that I felt protected. I felt like I could express myself and communicate to the audience, but I didn't have to see them. They they weren't going to respond in a way that I had to like address what they were thinking or their opinion. The teacher who was who was running the drill team saw potential in me and she suggested I take a free ballet class that was being offered at my local boys and girls club. So it was at 13 years old that I really entered into ballet. I took my first ballet class on a basketball court at my club and the teacher who was teaching from the local ballet school, she immediately said, I think you're a prodigy and I want to take you into my school in full scholarship. She eventually invited me to live with her. And from the moment that I stepped into her studio, the goal was for me to dance professionally. And American Ballet Theater was always the goal. So it was a clear vision of what I was working towards. But I just fell in love with this thing that gave me a purpose, gave me a way to grow as a human being. And I just feel like it saved my life. You said so many things that just caught my attention. You said there was a teacher. There was music that said what you wanted to say, but couldn't, didn't have the artistry to say it. And you said uh, Boys and Girls Club. So those seem to be the really important elements of your life that helped you in what you describe as an unstable situation. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, and all of those things are still so important in my life. So what music were you listening to? <laughs> There's a lot of soul and R&B and hip hop being played around the house. It was an array of music, but like Anita Baker and Sade and uh, Aretha Franklin. It was a lot of stuff. <laughs> the one that I really connected with was when Mariah Carey's debut album came out. And, you know, it was the first time that I saw a biracial woman of her caliber, her talent, her exposure. And I felt like I could see myself in her. It wasn't a conscious thing at the time. Like it wasn't until I was an adult that I could really decipher what that draw was. That's the importance of representation. It allows for you to see possibilities and it allows you to dream. And, you know, Mariah is a friend of mine now. And it's just funny to, to be able to like share these things with her. And she's always like, I'm not taking credit for your ballet career. I'm like, but Mariah, <laughs> you literally were like the catalyst for everything, you know, for this like belief in myself that I could do this thing that I knew nothing about and seeing someone who looked like me succeeding and talented and gifted. Well, you know, but that's the amazing thing is that that there are so many different influences in each of our lives, that, mm-hmm. but that you could connect those influences with what you ultimately came to do. Right. I also note, though, that you had mm-hmm. an outlet for what was going on in your mind about what your capabilities were mm-hmm. and how important it is for people to have ballet or whatever it is that they set their mind to do, uh, have an opportunity to mm-hmm. find it. Yes. But I imagine that ballet was not available for everyone in your area. You're absolutely right. And and that's why I'm so passionate about First of all, identifying the beauty in classical dance and all the positives that there are in terms of like how it helped me as a young person to develop as a human being. That's why I'm such an advocate for creating opportunities for it to be accessible to more communities and then kind of changing the narrative and the outlook on how these communities see dance and that they do belong in those spaces. You know, I attribute my success, the person that I am, all of this to so many of the qualities within the the ballet structure that gave me the tools to be successful, not just as a ballet dancer, but as a person, as a woman, as a leader in my community. And for me, as Misty, the, the Black ballerina, it's kind of picking apart what are the things that need to change and evolve in ballet, but what are the amazing things about it that can help so many children. Right out of the box, let's say, you were thinking way ahead. I mean, not that you were just going to learn ballet, but that you were going to have a career in ballet. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that I think that says something about who you are, too. I, that, you know, that you had an ambition. <laughs> you were ambitious. I don't think that consciously I was, I was like, I'm focused, I'm going to be a professional, but it was like, I love this and there's no way I could live my life without having it. And then it evolved into learning about the history of ballet, learning about the history of American ballet theater, how I could possibly fit into it, then being brought to my first live performance, seeing ABT when I was 15 years old and saying, I can see it clearly. This is exactly what I want to do. These are what my goals are. 
but again, it was having, having an incredible support system and structure around me that allowed me to see those things clearly. And you were making that kind of decision about where you would go with the American Ballet Theater against the backdrop of a society where Black women's bodies mm-hmm. have been scrutinized and misrepresented and dismissed and over-sexualized and all kinds of ways misinterpreted. And you were breaking into, at the time, what was a mostly white space. Mm-hmm. That's amazing in and of itself. But I think what is truly amazing is that you've done it on your own terms. <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a journey. And there have been people around me that have seen it clearly, like my first ballet teacher, Cynthia Bradley, whom I lived with, and who saw this vision from the beginning. I always thought she was this crazy lady <laughs> that was super artistic. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm just going to keep doing what I love. You can have your visions. But I was in almost this protective bubble where, though I was the only Black girl for the most part in in the studios that I trained in as a young person, Cynthia was really good about not letting that enter my bubble. (laughs) Um, There was a lot going on that I didn't learn about until I was older. There were parents who were removing their children from the school because I was doing the lead as a, a you know person of color. Um, I was taking parts away from their child when they were giving money as board members. You know, there's a lot of a lot of politics and and racism happening that a lot of black and brown children experience to their face at a young age in the ballet world. And I feel fortunate that I didn't experience that. It wasn't until I was a professional that I really understood how rare it was for me to be where I was. You know, I was the only Black woman uh, for the first decade of my career at ABT. And it was a lot. It was a lot of learning on the spot, learning on the job, but also being vulnerable and open to having mentors come into my life and being fortunate enough that people were reaching out to me, Black women reaching out to me outside of the ballet world that wanted to be a support system. And that's why I understand the importance of being a mentor for the next generation. After the break, Copeland and I discuss the scrutiny that Black female bodies face and how it's often amplified in the world of ballet. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. You're listening to Getting Even. I'm Anita Hill. I'm speaking with Misty Copeland, the first black female principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater. We talk about her book, Black Ballerinas, and her mission to celebrate dancers of color who have paved the way. We also get into how black bodies fit or don't fit the traditional ballet aesthetic and why Copeland's iconic roles are even more meaningful as a result. Were you ever told that you didn't have the right body for a ballet? Yes, I still am to this day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's so interesting is that from the time I started dance, why I was called a prodigy was that I was being told I had the perfect ballet body. I was given full scholarships. You know, I was told like you have the right body proportions. And then all of a sudden I become a professional and it, it's like something switched. I no longer had the right body. And a lot of that was like deciphering what that language means. And the more I was exposed to other dancers of color, other black women in the ballet world, the more you realize, oh, that's just code for you don't have the right skin color. And you will not fit into a corps de ballet. You will bring imbalance to this, this white sea of dancers. It was a lot to take in. And like in a ballet company, there's no mentorship program. There's no guidance. You know, I moved to New York City at, straight out of high school at 17 on my own. And you're just kind of thrown into the sea. You know, you sink or swim. And it was Im- important that I had incredible women that came into my life that kind of put that life vest on me and help me to like figure it out. <laughs> so do you think that a part of it too is not just not fitting into the particular aesthetic, but also this historic stereotype that we have of black yes. women dancers. I think about Josephine Baker who was, you know, able to mm-hmm. do what she was doing because she was considered to be exotic. Right. And that wasn't 
really mm-hmm. what was happening in ballet was it? I mean, the, the exotic was not what they were looking for. No, no. It's difficult to change the way people think ballet should be. And then it's just, it keeps getting repeated. Like this is what a ballerina should look like. She should be fair skinned and soft and feminine and black women are not often depicted that way or given an opportunity to be seen that way. Um, which is why it's so important, you know, for me to take on roles like Juliet and Romeo and Juliet or the white swan in Swan Lake. These are all roles that have been kept from black women for generations and generations because they're seen as the opposite of what black women are seen as. I think what happened with me is that I got to a point where a lot of black dancers get to where, first of all, the opportunities stop and you're not surrounded by people who have been through what you've been through. There's no real documentation of our history. It's not like we can open up a history book. Oh, this person went through this, this person went through this, and you kind of pick up from where they left off, learn from their experiences. We don't have that. And I feel like that's something that I've taken on as a responsibility. You know, I feel like I'm in this position to create our own narrative and and write our history. And, you know, that was really the reasoning for me writing Black Ballerinas, My Journey to Our Legacy, was to be able to share this 20-year journey that I've had being a professional with American Ballet Theater. And, you know, this wasn't like I decided to write this book and then I went on Google six months prior and I started learning. This has been 20 years of learning on the job, um, learning from other Black dancers that I'd meet and connect with and what dancers came before me. You know, it allows you to see where I can go because of what they've done and, and the doors that have been opened for me. And there are just so many incredible dancers that people don't know their names or their contributions to this art form. What are the names of some of those women? I'm like looking at my book right now. There's so many. Ty Jimenez, <laughs> Janet Collins, Deborah Austin, Raven Wilkinson, Marion Sujet. You know, they're the dancers today that I felt it was important to include in the list because it's not just about our past. It's about the dancers that are doing it now that are up and coming that are going to continue on our legacies. Erica Lull, uh, Nikisha Fogo, Ebony Williams. There's so many. And in my book, I have 27 that I featured and that's not at all a comprehensive list. But, you know, you're only given a certain number of pages on books. And so... <laughs> I know, I you know, know. <laughs> but um, but there's there's uh, an incredible list of, of black and brown dancers to learn about there. Of course, when you give us that description of your book and your work and your thinking, I'm thinking about black girls. Mm-hmm. Did you write this book for them? Yes, <laughs> I. You know, of course, everything that I do, I want it to be for everyone, even if it's if it's different communities learning about what it is to be a Black woman, what it is to be a Black dancer in this world. It's for everyone. But of course, you know, from my first book, my memoir, the through line throughout the entire book was, this is for the little brown girls, you know? And so, of course, those are the people that are often excluded when it comes to opportunities, when it comes to being nurtured and told they're beautiful and told they're important. So they're definitely at the top of mind whenever I'm writing or or thinking about the next generation. In a way, you are writing the history of ballet that hasn't been told. And I wonder if in that writing, you 
have come up with your own idea about why there is this resistance to the presence of the Black body. Mm-hmm. What's, yeah. what's behind that, in your opinion? Well, I think for starters, you know, this this is a European art form and that's kind of the base of it. So many of the stories and the ballets that we tell are not a reflection of our community as Black people and of so many communities, especially in America. They're the stories of European white men from the 1800s. <laughs> 400 years later, it's not really something that you can really grasp because it's been exposed to so many different cultures over the course of time. Um, so yes, those are the origins, but that's no longer the limitations of, of who sees it, um, who's influenced by it, who's inspired by it. It's now a part of the fabric of America. When you talk about how female dancers are portrayed through the eyes of white men, white European men. And that's where the sexism comes in, isn't it? Yeah. I was reading an article like a week ago, and I think it was in the New York Times about this, about, you know, the fact that white men are still completely running the classical ballet world. Um, you know, there has been some movement, but it's something that needs to be talked about and addressed. And I think you'll see some real shifts once you get more diversity at the top. You know, it's not just about the diversity you see on stage, but it's behind the scenes. It's the board of directors. It's the artistic staff. It's the teachers at the low levels that are teaching children. If they don't see themselves reflected and they don't have people who understand them, then that's when you lose that connection and people who want to be a part of it. So it's tackling these issues on every level. When you joined the American Ballet Theater, did you feel like you had to represent the race at ABT? Um, yes, but I, but I never saw that as a negative thing. I never saw that as um, something put on me or a pressure. It's, it's been something that I've actively done. From the moment that I joined ABT, my immediate visceral reaction was, oh my gosh, will I ever see another Black woman alongside me in this company? And so my goal was getting more brown girls in the company with me and telling our stories while I was in a space where I could be seen and heard. You could have made a different choice, I think, uh, and I understand the choice that you made to go to ABT, mm-hmm. but you could have chosen to go to Dance Theater of Harlem. I understand yeah. they were courting you to to come to Dance Theater of yes. Harlem. Why did you decide to go to American Ballet Theater? Yeah, it's a great question. I think from from the beginning, my teacher, Cynthia Bradley, from the moment that I started dancing, she, she was very cognizant of the obstacles that might lie ahead being a Black girl in the ballet world. And of all the companies in America and in Europe, ABT was the most diverse culturally in terms of where dancers were from and with their training. Um, most, most companies are connected to a school. You have to train through their school and their technique to get into the company. That's why all the dancers look similar. But at ABT, they allow dancers from all over the world to come into their company and they liked that they looked different. And so she felt like that's a place where she can thrive. 
Um, so that was the reason that ABT was what I was working towards. But Dance Street of Harlem was was always around and Arthur Mitchell was there supporting me. And I was pretty new to the company when Arthur called me and asked me to come take company class and speak to him. And he knew I was having a difficult time. He understood what it was to be the only, I mean, he was the only black person in a company at New York City Ballet and became the first black principal dancer there. He said to me, like, you know, you could come here and you could be surrounded by people who look like you, who will support you. These are unspoken things. You don't have to have these microaggressions and explain yourself. And he offered me a soloist contract. And my thinking was, first of all, what Arthur did at New York City Ballet changed the landscape for opportunities for black dancers everywhere. And then creating Dance Theater of Harlem took that to a whole new level. And I felt like I had a purpose being in that space in American Ballet Theater to make change that we still haven't made, which is to exist in these white spaces and succeed and change the narrative. And I didn't feel that I could do that completely at Dance Theater of Harlem. You know, I felt like I would be a part of something incredible and historic and I'd be surrounded by people who looked like me and I'd feel good inside. But I felt like I'm meant to be at ABT and make change there. And did you speak up there to, to make change? Yeah, I mean, it's been my whole career. <laughs> That's what I've been doing yeah. for 20 years. You know, it's it's been learning and navigating and doing it in ways that are acceptable. You know, it's like any Black person navigating their way through a white construct and learning how to have those conversations. That's a very intimidating thing to be a young Black girl having conversations with your older white male artistic director and, and being able to articulate yourself and express without being too aggressive or too over-emotional or angry, you know, all of these things attributed to being a woman and to being Black. And um, it's been a long process. And I feel like I'm definitely in a space now where I'm in a, in a position of power where I can speak to the truths of so many dancers that feel they can't because they may be reprimanded for it. I also think that we're in a different time, you know, post George Floyd, where it's not just the world that's, you know, that's looking at itself and wanting to take change, but the, the ballet world is absolutely doing it. And it's a good feeling to feel like I'm not the only person on this platform speaking, but that other, other dancers of color feel empowered to do it now. You mentioned George Floyd in 2020 was... Uh, a racial reckoning for the country. Have you seen meaningful change in the last couple of years in the ballet world? Change that can translate to what's going on outside in the world too. Yes. This is, you know, this is the first time that um, I feel that we're being exposed. Ballet culture is such a niche thing and we kind of exist in our own world. And so the people inside of it get away with a lot of things. <laughs> and I feel like we've almost been exposed. You know, the doors have been open and people are seeing what we went through, you know, with this rise of Black Lives Matter. Like the ballet world is like a couple hundred years behind that. So it's been a moment, but also with the pandemic it really, I think, made the ballet world in particular step back and take a look at itself. So I'm, I'm hopeful, but, you know, we have to just keep the conversation going and hold people accountable. It shouldn't just be our responsibility as black and brown people. Everyone mm -hmm. should be contributing to the changes and evolution. 
a couple of years ago, uh, a dancer, Chloe Lopez Gomes, yes. uh, won her complaint against the German ballet company mm-hmm. for race discrimination. Uh, mm-hmm. Very recently, last year, Christine Fentroy uh, left Dance Theater of Harlem for the Boston Ballet. And she said, you know, out loud, something that probably dancers wouldn't have said years ago, but she says she dances for the other people to change people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I ask you, can breakthroughs like yours, like Miss Lopez Gomes, like Miss Fentroy's, can they change people's lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't even have exposure to that. And my life was changed through this art form. And I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand, you know, simply by, by existing, by being a body on that stage that people can connect to and relate to and see possibilities. And it may not be connected to ballet, but they can say, I can exist in a space where there aren't very many, but, but it's a possibility for me. I definitely think that all of these stories being accessible will change lives, are changing lives. And that's why it's so important for me to continue on these legacies and share these stories. It's definitely making an impact. Well, I will just close by saying this. When I was in law school, I took my first ballet class. It literally changed the way that I saw myself and I saw my body. And you also have to keep in mind that I am a farm girl from Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, really rural Oklahoma. And I have loved (laughs) ballet. Uh, And I I think you're absolutely right that ballet can change people's perspective of life uh, and of of their own bodies and and where they belong and um, and in large part that is because of the work that you're doing that people understand that so thank you so much thanks for all that you are doing and uh, keep up the great work thank you so much for having me it's an honor thank you Misty Copeland's story reminds us that opportunity and support can change a person's life and how that, in turn, can change our world. Along with her immense talent, determination, and hard work, Copeland's legacy will be her commitment to creating a career on her own terms. She is inspiring and uplifting the next generation. We need to give them the support and resources they need to succeed. Resources that are too often lacking for black and brown girls. Copeland is paying it back and paying it forward, lifting up the names of the dancers on whose shoulders she stands and bringing others along with her as she diversifies ballet. In the next episode, I speak with author, educator, and activist Monique Morris about her work to transform the lives of Black and Brown girls and how they're represented in the world. To unpack how we normalized this expectation that Black girls will be loud, sassy, combative, and sexualized without talking about remedy. 
Getting Even is a production of Pushkin Industries and is written and hosted by me, Anita Hill. It is produced by Mola Board and Brittany Brown. Our editor is Sarah Kramer. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Luis Guerra composed original music for the show. Our executive producers are Mia Lobel and Letal Malad. Our director of development is Justine Lang. Ed Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Julia Barton, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Anita Hill and on Facebook at Anita Hill. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods. And you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can hear Getting Even and other Pushkin shows ad-free and receive exclusive bonus episodes. Sign up on the Getting Even show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at Let'sMakeAPlan.org.